listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I am joined by... Uh, Danielle Partis. And Brendan Sinclair. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories from the past week. We are not going to be talking about Epic versus Apple purely because we're we're kind of in, in the final days of the case. So the plan is that we're aiming to bring in a guest next week to look back at the, the trial as a whole. Um, we're not expecting a ruling on Monday. I don't, expect, don't think we're expecting a ruling for the next few weeks. So that should be kind of a safe period to look at both sides both arguments and uh, see where we think this is going to go we do have other stories to be discussing starting with warner media um so the parent company of warner brothers interactive entertainment or warner brothers games depending on how you want to refer to them there have been reports over the last couple of years that the the parent of that parent, uh, AT&T, which owned WarnerMedia, uh, was going to split off, was going to sell off the Warner Brothers business. Um, that never came to be, whether those discussions just didn't reach fruition or if they just were over-exaggerated reports at the time didn't come to be but AT&T has now said that they're going to split off the WarnerMedia part of its business in a, in a joint venture with Discovery. Um, this is a $43 billion deal um, that mostly seems to be focused on streaming content and bringing things like HBO Max and Discovery's content together, but it does affect Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment. The most interesting part of this story is, according to IGN, not all of Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment is going to be moved over to the new joint venture company, which hasn't got a name yet. Um, some of it, essentially, the Warner Brothers Games division is going to be split up. Um Warner Brothers Games website currently lists 11 studios or 11 offices. Um, so we know most of them. Things like NetherRealm Studios, which does Mortal Kombat, Monolith Productions, which does the Middle Earth Shadow of War games, TT Games, which does the Lego titles, Rocksteady, which obviously does uh, the Batman Arkham games, and he's working on it. They're doing the Suicide Squad one, aren't they? Not Gotham City Knights. Yes, they are. Um, Avalanche Software, which is doing the Hogwarts uh, Legacy big Harry Potter RPG. Uh, Warner Brothers obviously has a bunch of named studios. Um, so it's got Warner Brothers Games Montreal, Warner Brothers Games San Francisco. So there's a lot of kind of businesses here that could potentially be split. I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on like, how how do you split that? Because that seems like quite a, a dense portfolio and it seems odd breaking those apart. There's nothing there that lifts out to me. I think some of their um, W Games location uh, studios are mobile focused mm. and I could see, I suppose, uh, you splitting it up that way. Um, a lot of these are like they, they rely so much on things like the DC comics licenses, uh, and, and Batman that I don't think it makes sense to have, you know, Rocksteady not owned, by the same entity that that owns DC Comics, um, so I I think those are pretty safely going to be going with um, with DC Comics to this this new Discovery Warner uh, standalone company. I honestly I I don't understand which ones of these AT and T would want to keep like if, if their entire thing here is that they are trying to focus on, um, broadband and 5g rollout, their fiber networks, things like that. And that's what they're using this money for of, of, from this transaction. Like how does a game company really play into that at all? 
because that's it has to be that strategy that is like their their excuse for doing this because it was just five years ago that AT&T acquired Time Warner for a hundred and eight billion dollars and now they're they're spinning it off um, and the AT&T shareholders will have 71% of this new joint company uh, with, with Discovery. AT&T itself, though, is, is only getting $43 billion uh, from, from the deal. So, like, that doesn't... It doesn't sound like a really good decision for AT&T to, to jump into uh, the media realm by buying Time Warner and then to, like just completely unloaded a few years later unless unless it is absolutely like a a wholehearted switch in in strategy it seems like poor asset management to me otherwise um and even you know in this case but it's i i don't see what what of of wb games stays behind that at&t has any interest in given their their new direction no i agree and by by the same logic like you know as you say like you know dc comics is going over to the new venture the new venture seems to be primarily around content i think the, what i read or what i heard about the new venture is like at&t basically wants like one company for its broadband and communication stuff and one company for its content stuff which is going to be working with discovery on so that presumably means Harry Potter um, is going over to that side and Lord of the Rings is going over to that side. So that kind of accounts for Avalanche and Monolith. Um, the licensing deal with Lego for the uh, TT Games stuff, um, I don't know who owns that side of things, uh, but again, it makes sense to put that in your content business. I wonder if the other possibility is, because I'm now looking again at the um, the original tweet from uh, IGN's Julia Alexander. All she said was... Um, this sale includes some of Warner Brothers Interactive slash Warner Brothers games, but not all. I wonder if most of the, the big studios, so NetherRealm and um, Avalanche, Monolith, Rocksteady, CT Games, etc., all the, the WB Games Montreal, I wonder if they get moved over to the new, new venture and then the smaller studios, the mobile studios, get closed because they're not needed anymore. Oh, that's... Yeah, that is a distinct possibility and now that you mention it 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 does seem um like a a reasonable outcome which would be a shame it would because we're now looking at what four or five studios that then everyone loses their jobs um so actually i'm not as familiar with warner brothers kind of mobile output i know there's like a mobile version of injustice but beyond that um i'm not i'm not familiar with the their games. I, I I do hope that most of the big studios get kept together. It makes sense for that to happen, but you look at you know the, the output of like um, Netherrealm, Monolith, TT Games, Rocksteady, Avalanche. Like, well, obviously we haven't seen Avalanche's latest game yet, but those are all like kind of big, promising AAA games, and it would be a shame to see those kind of split off or hindered. Um, you know, if there was, you know, if there becomes complications between like you know licensing rights between the two companies. Um, it just I I hope it, Warner Brothers has a decent portfolio as a games publisher, and I'm hoping this deal doesn't disrupt that too much. Yeah, uh, uh, so I think the the companies that we know in the console and the PC space 
I, I would hope most of them are, are pretty secure here in, in the mobile space, which I personally just don't, uh, I don't follow as closely. Um, it's, it's entirely possible and, and think even, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if a number of those W game studios, WB game studios that do focus on, on mobile are actually, you know, fairly successful, even if I don't personally play or have a ton of interest in what they, they put out. So hopefully they, they are, you know, businesses that justify their, their being brought over into the new company. Um, but it is, it is concerning, uh, for sure to, to have, you know, on the day of the merger, um, on the day the deal was announced to have word already coming out that like, not everyone's going to come over. Mm. Moving on, Take-Two CEO Strauss Zelnick expressed skepticism about a number of recent trends in an earnings call around its latest financial results. Uh, speaking to investors, he said, if you take Metaverse, SPAC, which I am told handily by the website I have open is Special Purpose Acquisition Company, uh, and cryptocurrency, put them all together in five years, will any of this matter? I'm not sure that it will. Um, this conversation was during a uh, part where they were discussing whether or not Grand Theft Auto Online and Red Dead Online could become metaverse-like experiences, to which he said, I'm always allergic to buzzwords. Uh, you know the buzzword of virtual reality didn't get this, uh, this industry very far. AR hasn't improved matters. 3D hasn't really done much for us. What moves the deal... Uh, what moves the dial in our business is amazing creativity, great characters, great stories, great graphics, great gameplay, the ability to enjoy those experiences with people around the world. Uh, the last thing he said on this is he, he suggested that the metaverse that people keep referring to is the way that people already experience things like GTA Online, Red Dead Online and NBA 2K. He said that these titles provide people with an opportunity to exist in a fictional world and express themselves in a challenging, fun and competitive way that we really can't do in the real world. Now, as someone who is also allergic to buzzwords, or I like to think building a high tolerance or immunity to buzzwords, I quite like seeing a CEO not get caught up in in the fad. I quite like someone saying, no, this is nonsense. This is not necessarily going to be the big, the big be all and end all that people insist that it must be. Yeah, this is this is kind of Zelnick's um, M.O., I, I, I guess, and. I, I think he's been kind of um, consistent about this since since he took over at Take Two. Is that like when we have trends come up, um, he's he's usually like, yeah, yeah, I'm interested in it. I guess maybe we'll do something there. Like there's a sort of uh, due diligence that as the head of the company, he he will have Take Two positioned to you know it'll he'll put a toe in the water you know like vr um he was always skeptical about it we they made um la noir for for vr um and i think a carnival games also or with with streaming like the you know stadia kind of services and he was he was skeptical about it he's like yeah i don't I don't think this is really going to be anything, but we meet our consumers where they want to be met, basically, 
And so they put Red Dead uh, Redemption 2 onto Stadia. And, I mean, that that's kind of like, as a business, that seems to be Take-Two's just general path through the industries, is they are, um, they're conservative, but not dogmatically so. And, and uh, I think that that basically goes right back to to Zelnick with the way that he he will you know he's he's not going to be championing or pushing trends the way some people are he's not you know like epic games raising money to pursue the metaverse vision he's just kind of like yeah well we put social stuff into Grand Theft Auto and made GTA online and now people are role playing in it and when you know you have people jumping into your virtual world to be someone else like that creating their own sort of you know stories and entertainment out of it i don't know what else you need before you count as a a metaverse this you know pie in the sky goal that people have been chasing for decades and really is just you know kind of a meaningless buzzword his avoidance to to use the the phrase metaverse doesn't really mean that that take two titles aren't already kind of playing into it a little bit as you said they're just kind of doing it without calling it the metaverse metaverse is one of those words that increasingly people are kind of using to make it sound more impressive than it is like you know we're in the middle of the epic apple trial like tim sweeney's description of Fortnite as a metaverse as a phenomenon that just transcends gaming he's like no it is a game it's an online game that has become a social space if that's the definition of a metaverse then any online game where people can interact and as you say brendan like and even do role play and stuff is is a metaverse by that by that example i've i've actually recently started playing um, red dead online myself it's on um game pass now so i thought i'd download it and give it a go and it's great it's it's not a metaverse it's just a really really good online game like it doesn't need that buzzword kind of attached to it to make it seem impressive it is already a a high quality product i'm tempted to like ask us to put a you know a fine definition on the word metaverse but after the last few weeks i am just all tedious discourse about definition of game <laughs> terms out <laughs> this thing, I, I, I don't think i could define metaverse at this point anymore because it's a word that's been used by so many people in so many different contexts to 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 try to describe so many different products like that there just isn't a way of it. It's it's a buzzword. It really is a buzzword, and I just kind of I, I really like his kind of I'm allergic to buzzwords. Take like I th- I think it, it, it's it's prudent as well because like you know the your ten years ago this month column lives on people who make bold statements and ten years later or five years as Zelnick kind of predicts are uh, left very much with egg on their face. He is very much he is very much attempting to to maintain an egg proof face. Yeah, we had a a good one uh, in the the most recent ten years ago this month column. Since you mention it, with the uh, uh, well, for one, there was the uh, Daniel Kaplan, the first employee of of Mojang, um, talking about how like okay, well, you know, we gotta we gotta prepare for Minecraft's inevitable decline. You know, we <laughs> we we know it's we know it can't last forever, so we're hoping that scrolls will you know be on the on the uptick when when minecraft starts going down and then we'll be covered there was that but there there was also uh ed freeze um 
original Xbox team member, longtime game industry investor, knows his stuff. But after seeing motion controls and connect, he was uh, he was convinced that like we're not really doing innovation in the software space so much now because it's just like sequels after sequels after sequels. The real innovation is in the hardware space, you know, where we've gotten rid of all these you know controllers. Now it's depth sensing cameras and all this, and and then. I look at the space now and it's like the new console generation's big innovation is uh, it loads faster and (laughs) the new iPhones, like literally the headline on the press release announcing the new iPhone is that it comes in purple. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) So yeah, yeah. 10 years ago this month lives on those kind of statements. Um, I, I don't think we've, really featured Zelnick as a bad call in the in the good call bad call section now that you mention it and this is probably why this is probably why he's probably been avoiding those bad he probably reads he probably reads 10 years ago this month every month and thinks you know what no Brendan you're not going to get me yeah well <laughs> I, I, I've, I've got one in the chamber if we can just last for another like seven years here doing this then uh, he did he did talk about uh, how you know, it's inevitable that China opens up more um, and starts, you know, permitting more free trade and everything like right before the shift in the way it tr- was treating Hong Kong and all the protests that came up. <laughs> so if if things keep on that trend for another few years, there's there is a potential for a Zelnik bad call in there for sure. One other thought I had is that um I guess GTA is one of those franchises that kind of leads in its single player narratives and has done for a long time. So I guess when people are trying to pivot to this metaverse model, because that's where the money is, games like GTA will just be fine because they can continue to operate um, on what they've always done um, because there's a lot of trust in that, whereas other new IPs might not have that. Mm. Just a thought. What I quite like about um, GTA Online and, and Red Dead Online is that they they try they, they they frame it when you first play like a single player experience. So it still feels mm-hmm. like a single player experience where you've you know you've still got cutscenes and story missions and so forth, but it's in a world where you are then playing around other people, which I think is is kind of a different take. Like mo- most people's answer to what you know making the metaverse is like let's just build a fun space with lots of systems and tools and mechanics and just let players make the fun themselves. And what I like is that Take Two. You know, not that they're aiming to make a metaverse, but Take Two with its online stuff or Rockstar with its online stuff is like, no, let's make the high crafty quality sort of experience that we're known for, but one where you're with other people. Hmm. It's amazing how the the uh, longevity of GTA Online uh, just like it's last year was its its most successful year ever as as far as you know player spending, and that's. Um, yeah, it, it launched in 2013, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's. it's it, I mean, th- this is this is the games industry um, for now. Any, anyways, it's it's just people are they're making games as a service, and they are uh, continuing to to just kind of grow, like in a much more reliable way than publishers have ever been able to to have you know they've got this steady revenue stream and and you know if if they get a hit it can apparently just keep growing and growing indefinitely and i'm 
the the industry always sh- shakes itself up every every few years. Uh, I'm I'm very curious though to see what happens when the industry has shifted so heavily to something that is kind of you know the antithesis of being shaken up. You know, is 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 there a pivot away from this kind of model to be made when you know I don't I don't necessarily see this model like it can plateau. I'm I'm guessing, but I'm I'm not sure that yeah. this is something where the bottom is going to fall out on anyone anytime soon. No, I agree with that. Like, I, I mean, the fact that yeah, GTA Online alone, like the fact that it, it, it's still going, like we're getting the um, it was announced earlier this week that um, it's GTA Five is going to be getting its PS Five and Xbox Series X update um, in or you know, version in November, which will come with GTA Online. I think I believe it's been confirmed that GTA Online is going to launch almost as a standalone on both these consoles, so you won't have to have well, Red Dead Online has already done it as well. Like, you won't have to have the story game to just have the online game. Like, so this you know, this game is not. Not going, you know, going back to that comment from um, Daniel Kaplan about, you know, we're going to have to prepare for Minecraft's uh, decline and Minecraft is still going. I don't think we need to prepare for GTA Online's decline anytime soon. I would not be shocked if we still have GTA Online that's still big at the, at the end of this current console generation. Um To your point, Brendan, about like, you know, like pivoting away from these the uh, these service games and, or, you know, plateau you know drop bottom him out rather than plateauing i can't see it i can't i've been listening to um, another podcast recently and they were speculating this kind of like because games have become so like triple a games have become so big could become so long and bloated and service based and it's all a bit about trying to kind of get those those post-launch transactions like the hosts were predicting that there's going to be kind of a violent swing backwards and we're going to get more focused you know 10, 20 hour experiences rather than these 60, 100 hour ones. I don't see that happening. I would love it to happen because that fits more yeah. in with my personal play style, but I am in the minority with this. I'm going to try not to take us into old man yells at cloud territory again this week, but that's just not how people interact with gaming. You've got an entire generation of, of gamers who are growing up playing things like Fortnite, GTA Online, um, Apex Legend, all these sort of things, you know, playing these games that, that change over time um, and they don't need to buy the next one. They just invest in their experience in this one. Like that's how they are used to. That's how they are accustomed to, you know, interacting with these things. So, yeah, I, you know, they they don't need they don't need GTA Six. Yeah, they, the thing I've been thinking about is is when GTA Six is is ready to to come out, and I'm sure that it will be soon. There there is no motivation for people to to move over to a next one unless there's a way to keep hold of the things that they've already invested in over the last how many years. I mean, I, I've bought GTA five three different times across three different generations. Um, and I don't, you know, play that much, but there will be people that have invested hundreds, if not thousands of pounds into this game and they don't want to go anywhere. And, you know, what's the motivation to move those players over for, for them? Well, that's the thing. Like you can still have the, here's the premium uh, experience. And then the, here's the, at this point, people would treat it like a free-to-play game almost, I think, right? Because mm. they paid for it six or seven years ago. Um, <laughs> and and you can keep running. Like it, The question for me is whether or not GTA 6, when it comes out, has its own like GTA Online 2 part yeah. of it. Mm. Um, is, is there a way for them to just improve the original you know, GTA 
online graphically or whatever for modern hardware at the time, or do they supplant it entirely? Um, cause like, this is a question MMOs have been dealing with for decades, right? Mm. Uh, you've got world of Warcraft and it looks very different now than it did when it first came out, right? They've, they've upgraded, uh, the, the look of it a number of times, uh, as I understand it. And they've kept the game basically the same though. Whereas you have the other approach that like back in the day, EverQuest, uh, Sony Online Entertainment took with EverQuest where they made EverQuest 2 and everyone from EverQuest switched over to the separate game and my impression at the time was that like a lot of them just did not like it it was not what they wanted they just preferred what they were already comfortable with and some of those people went back to EverQuest um and, and that's why it kept running in parallel with EverQuest 2. And some of those people were just, you know, went to go do something else with their, with their free time. And, and that, that I, I always took that as like a, a serious setback for the franchise. And now I look at something like, um, you know, Call of Duty, where they release black ops cold war and it's you know 60 70 bucks and then you've got call of duty Warzone, and it's free and they are both succeeding um and you don't need you know they didn't need to have a new war zone as part of cold war they integrated in there and they changed some some of the uh updated the maps and stuff uh, from what I understand, but like, I don't think that these, these projects don't cannibalize one another, I guess is, is the, the point I'm trying to make. So with Grand Theft Auto online or sorry, with Grand Theft Auto six, I think it is entirely possible for take two to just keep running Grand Theft Auto online in some form and to, to launch GTA six at the way they would launch, you know, GTA four or any of their others without the online component as part of it and still sell a ridiculous amount of GTA six, not 145 million like they have with GTA five, but still plenty to make it uh, worth their while. Well, GTA six could include GTA online as it exists now. And like you say, like if they kind of modernize it and overhaul it, like the theory I heard was that GTA six will, you know, it will launch, it'll obviously be set in a new city, new area. And that area will also be added to GTA online. So if you're playing GTA online, you can either play in, is it Blaine County? Well, you know, like the, the San Andreas and the surrounding area, or you can in within GTA Online, um, you know, fast travel to the GTA Six area, and there will be content there to do, and it will all be kind of one experience. I would, I'd be shocked if GTA Six comes out in a box with no online component at all. I imagine it will still have GTA Online, whether that is its current form or an expanded version of that with the GTA Six content and location. They've got options. They've got options. They absolutely have options. And none of them require relying on buzzwords. (laughs) 
next story, Embracer Group has had acquisition talks with 150 more companies, and it says it's in more than 20 late-stage talks with targets for purchase. Uh, Brendan, you kind of covered this. Um, these numbers are ridiculous. Embracer Group, I don't understand what else there is for them to buy. And I joke that, obviously, this is a big industry. There are so many companies like, but the idea of there being 150 target companies for a group that has already bought probably a hundred companies is just mind-boggling to me what was your take on this i think that's a bit of an exaggeration but uh, they have bought uh, uh, at least 25 since the beginning of 2020 um they said that they're in late stage talks with with 20 more uh including several that they've signed letters of intent on and they raised 890 million in march uh for acquiring more companies and this is this is part of a trend uh embracer group is just maybe the the most um conspicuous company participating in the trend of uh just acquiring companies just get bigger you know push push the revenues up every year because it's a lot easier i think to push revenues up um by buying a company that already brings in a fair amount of revenue instead of actually, you know, making your core business uh, all of a sudden sell better. Uh, and what, what gets me about this is that, like, I'm deeply skeptical of, of the strategy um, because I, I don't think Embracer Group has been as uh, calculated with some of these acquisitions as they as they should have been, or as I would expect acquiring companies to be. Uh, they've, they've really just... The target companies that they've picked up kind of run the gamut from uh, really good investments to I don't understand what this company adds to Embracer Group's, you know, portfolio other than, you know, they bring in more revenue. Like some of the some of the companies they've picked up, I look at and I'm like, okay, they're a developer, that's fine. But you know, if 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 this developer went out of business next month, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been surprised at all. You know, if it was either them being acquired or them just folding completely. Like this year, they had one huge hit uh, with with Valheim, which Coffee Stain Studios uh, published into early access on steam they sold 6.8 million copies um and like that's that's obviously you know a, a great success for them and coffee stain i always thought was was a good pickup um beyond that though they've their best-selling titles for uh for the year were spongebob squarepants battle for bikini bottom rehydrated uh, remastered re-release that sold a little over 2 million copies. Uh, SnowRunner, which sold less than 2 million, and Destroy All Humans, uh, which got a little more than 1 million. And they're, like, the entire strategy seems to be quantity over quality, right? Because I'm not, I'm not sure how many other publishers... Um, I'll, I'll say Valheim was a surprise success. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, like definitely. I, I, don't, yeah, I don't think absolutely. anyone. Okay, imagine. So, given it was a, it was a surprise to Coffee Stain, yes, I think that's I think that's a, that's a fair statement. So I don't I don't know how many how many companies there are out there 
uh, with more than a billion dollars in annual revenue that are like looking at their plan for the year and saying, you know what our best seller is? It's going to be SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom Rehydrated. It's like it's it's a nostalgia play remake of a licensed game from a decade ago that was like surprisingly not terrible, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like that's and and they they've got they have their their current slate currently in development is 160 games in the works, 160 development projects. And like they're looking at buying 150 companies. They got 160 games on their slate and they got the nerve to tell people in their, in their uh, statement and uh, their, in their earnings release. Um, it is important that we stay prudent in our merger and acquisition strategy and not rush into closing a transaction before it is ready in mergers <laughs> and acquisitions as in game development quality comes first. <laughs> And that's just trolling people, right? <laughs> yeah. The investor relations page is a very unusual place to choose to troll people, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure they are. It's bizarre as well, because like the, the biggest game I can name that's coming out of an Embracer-owned studio is not even going to be published by them. Um, it emerged earlier this week that uh, Gearbox and 2K are reportedly working on like a new Borderlands because 2K still has the publishing rights to Borderlands. So, and that is by far and away going to be uh, that, that's going to be a lot bigger than SpongeBob SquarePants if they are to do another of those. Like, so yeah, I don't, I don't understand. They uh, apologies for my exaggeration earlier when I was telling you they bought a hundred studios. I think what I get confused by is the fact that they've bought, they've definitely bought, they must have bought more than a hundred IP because this company started or certainly certainly rose to prominence on buying a ton of old assets and IP and franchises from the original THQ, and most of that they've done nothing with, apart from like kind of re-releasing some previous titles. They've done nothing with, and yet I don't under so I don't understand the the investment they've made in that, and yet they're continuing to invest in other businesses. Um, it's it's such a bizarre strategy. Uh, it could it could be like if they're basically playing small ball, uh, which which seems to be uh, a, a bit of the strategy. Like if if they are just unusually good at securing these companies and getting a good deal on them then sure and if if these companies are all you know like oh well they're they're not hitting it out of the park but you know they're they're making they're making a profit a respectable profit year in and year out then then yeah conceivably that that adds up to something that that might be sustainable i mean certainly when you know some of these acquisitions inevitably um have bad years or or face challenges and have to be shuttered or whatever because they're unprofitable like they have enough other companies in the in the family to to keep them afloat i guess but like it's if when i looked at their their financials i was um surprised i guess that that they have had some organic revenue growth as well as just growth from uh, acquiring new new companies, a lot of the the companies in their portfolio that they bought previously uh, were just you know 
reporting higher sales year over year. So even if they hadn't bought these companies, they still, you know, probably would have been uh, on an upward trajectory. Part of that might be due to the pandemic, rising tide, lifting all boats. The thing is, their revenues were up 72% last year, but their their net profits were, were up less than 2%. And this is during a year when, you know, companies across the board seem to be posting record results. Mm-hmm. And and if Embracer Group is going to just keep expanding like this, uh, I don't, I don't really. Uh, so many baseball analogies here, but I don't really trust its batting average is going to hold up when it's taking so many swings uh, at so many companies and so many games. I, I was just thinking. Um, I, I completely went off on a random thought. Is that correct me if I'm wrong, Brendan? But they said that two thirds of the things that they were looking at were either new franchises or uh, titles that were of IPs that were at least five years old. Um, is that, was that right? Yeah, I, yeah. IPs that haven't had a new installment in five years. So it, all, all it did was left me wondering, are they looking at, you know, nostalgic pings like SpongeBob and Destroy Humans and thinking, you know, what next? What can we wake up next to kind of get a small burst of of nostalgia income from because I, I imagine uh, games like that kind of I, I don't know if they continue to sell or whether they just sell well initially and then it kind of drops off because everyone that wants to buy it has kind of bought it um, I'm not sure we've got a really good track record uh, to, to determine that just yet just because the the trend of, of remakes uh, especially like the nostalgia-driven remakes instead of here's a game from just the last generation that you might have missed. Uh, the the real nostalgia-driven remake seems like a recent enough trend to me that that maybe we don't really know. I, I'm certainly skeptical that SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom Rehydrated is going to have legs. I, I, they, they'll be like the short, stubby legs sticking out of the square pants kind of thing but that's that's a beautiful image um yeah i i, I can kind of perhaps see the logic like like i said you know referring again to that that massive vault of port, uh, of ip there they've got like if they if they happen to have, have something if they've got a roadmap of right nostalgia i think chris our colleague chris says nostalgia kind of kicks in around 20 years when something is 20 years old people become become nostalgic for us so if they've, if they've got enough games that right people this this is due to become nostalgia you know d- d- nostalgic demand is due to arrive for this game in this year and that game in that year and that game. they could well have across that portfolio say 10 20 years of right if we just release one of these per year this will appeal to a certain group a certain generation a certain age group um and will you know could sell a million or two million um you know across all these different franchises and obviously that would just be one blip for those franchises but if you've got enough of those franchises that's enough to have a hit per year mm. i just don't see that as a sustainable fra- uh, strategy that's the sort of thing you do to kind of bolster or support the other things you're doing but the other things they're doing don't seem to be as as traditionally kind of impressive as, as you would expect from a publisher of this size and then you know it, it, again it's worth kind of trying to fathom the size of Embracer now I'd love for someone to kind of do a kind of almost like family tree style diagram of everything owned by Embracer um, because it's just insane if it were a smaller company 
I would I would wonder like right are they buying enough things that have value with them that you know that have enough uh, you know desirable IP that they themselves can then sell could could you know kind of this is ridiculous kind of tangent but could embrace a group build itself to a point where it's valuable enough that it sells to Microsoft and then Microsoft gets all of this stuff for Game Pass like but I think it's it's got to the it's now become too big for that to seem like a viable option and if they're talking and I know they're not going to do all 150 but they're if they're talking to 150 and they've definitely got 20 that they're they're gunning for like it's going to get even bigger it just seems it seems like a very unwieldy sized company to even think about running Final story of the week is Free Radical Design is back. The studio behind Time Splitters uh, has been reformed by two of its original founders, uh, Steve Ellis and David Doak. Yes, Dr. Doak, the chap that we all murdered in Goldeneye, but it's okay. I interviewed him a couple of years ago and he's all right with it. He forgives us. Um, they are going to have a new office based kind of near Nottingham and they have confirmed they are working on a new Time Splitters game. Uh, obviously, Time Splitters is owned by uh, Deep Silver, uh, Kutch Media, which kind of bought uh, Free Radical back in the day, I believe. Um, uh, tying back into the previous conversation this is another kind of nostalgia hit people are nostalgic for time splitters there has been demand and petitions and change.org campaigns for a new time splitters uh, for years whether or not it's going to be a hit I don't know and Brendan you are somewhat sceptical I just never really got the appeal of time splitters honestly but I, I mean to, to be fair I, I never really got the appeal of Goldeneye on, on N64 um you get to I, be I, James Bond. <laughs> That's the appeal. Yeah, you get to be a horrible womanizing assassin <laughs> for the state. That's delightful. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> I just cancel my Bond podcast now, shall I? I, I understand <laughs> that you have a uh, an established interest in 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 the character and an investment in him. Um, no, I was, I was playing PC first person shooters at the time and wondering like, man, are they ever going to make a console first person shooter that really works? Um, and I had heard time splitters was, you know, was that, that thing that I was looking for, you know, first person shooter that actually feels reasonable on console. Um, and, and it wasn't, I didn't find that till halo really, but, um, and the the sense of humor in in time splitters was um i don't know it it kept it struck me as being wait why am i why am i just telling you why i wasn't interested in time splitters why don't you tell I me i don't know why but i'm were? enjoying it <laughs> <laughs> um, well this is the thing as much as we were talking about Time Splitters becoming a, a, a nostalgic release now, I think I look back and I realise it was a nostalgic release then. So the whole appeal of Time Splitters was this is the shooter that's by the people who did Goldeneye and Perfect Dark because they left Rare. They left Rare middle of the way through um, Perfect Dark. These are the people that made what many believe to be the greatest um, console shooter of the N64 age, one of the greatest console shooters of all time, depending on your fanboy allegiances. Um and you know this was the, this was the next game from the Golden Eye and Perfect Dark team, so that was the appeal. I have only played Time Splitters two, 
and a bit of Future Perfect, which is the third one. But Titans 2 opens heavily on that nostalgia in that that first mission is it's at a Russian dam, which looks suspiciously like the first um, the first mission of Goldeneye. And there's like halfway through, there's like a spy mission, which feels suspiciously like a, a James Bond kind of spy mission. Like, And they were tapping it. You know, there were there was sci-fi levels. There was um, uh, the Neo Tokyo level like halfway through, which, which was meant to feel a bit like Perfect Dark. The... The appeal of it was they're not making any they're not making another Goldeneye, they're not making another Perfect Dark, or they are, but it's not the same, it's not as good. This is the next in that spiritual successor kind of line. Um, and that was the appeal. And in that regard, it absolutely delivered. It felt like those kind of games, but with a bit you know, a bit more of wackiness and irreverence and stuff. I don't I I enjoyed Transfers too partly because I'm a sucker for any kind of time travel story and I use story in the strong, broadest possible term because the story basically was aliens have stolen crystals and hidden them in different time zones now go to these nine levels that are themed on different time zones and kill all of the time-specific enemies and knowing that one of them might be the alien that has the crystal. Um, that is the story. Um, it's, I don't know, it, it, it just tapped into that feeling of playing Goldeneye, playing Perfect Dark, and then because it was so varied, because of the time travel nature, like, again, I'm, only, I'm basically going from Time Splitters 2, but you had a level that felt like Goldeneye. You had a level that was a Wild West game, so it was essentially like a cowboy shooter, and it had you know, that, that, that classic, cheesy, ricochet sound effect you get from, um, from old Western films. You know, it had a couple of sci-fi levels. It had a couple of kind of a, a gothic level. Like, it was... It was. It felt like a kind of a, a compilation of different shooters that was just bundled together into this thing, and it was fun. You know, I, I know it's, it's it's that's a strange concept nowadays. That, that that's the key appeal of a game is it's fun, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. That premise sounds like an absolute nightmare to me uh, from a development perspective in the HD era. Just every how many assets do you really get to reuse when you know one level is like an egyptian pyramid and the next level is neo tokyo and like that seems that seems like the the kind of um i don't know a a game that i would expect to be uh outside the budget of uh the coke media Hmm. Well, I, I suspect. I mean, we don't know what they're going to do with this one, but like, I suspect that that's why Time Split is Future Perfect, which was the last one in the series. That I don't believe did as much of the time hopping stuff. I think I think you like there were like there were like nine or ten levels, but spread across two or three time periods. So I don't think it was as as ridiculous and as as varied as Time Split is too. But I think that's part of why it wasn't as popular. Um, that's purely going from my memories of it at the time. So the way you're describing it. Um the the appeal of the original one is like you want more golden eye um and sort of perfect dark uh but we don't have the golden eye and perfect dark license so we're gonna give you time splitters instead yeah and it's like you want you want coke here's rc cola and now (laughs) years and years down the line the pitch for this is you want Coke? We got the RC Cola brand and now we're going to do more of that. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, that's basically it. 
But okay. I don't know. There's there's enough there's enough fond memories of people playing Time Splitters back in the day that people want another one, and I would be intrigued to see what one looks like. I do wonder if it's one of those franchises that is so old that no matter what they do now. Because you've got to make it appeal to a modern audience, you've got to make it fit in and stand up, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the modern shooters. It will, by default, not feel or look anything like the original Time Splitters. So, if I could just do a HD remake of Time Splitters two, just to kind of sow the seed, and, and or even just do that and be done with it, I'd be okay with that. Maybe, maybe it'll surprise us, and the upcoming time splitters metaverse will be the thing that single-handedly sustains embracer for the next seven years maybe that will happen mm. <laughs> I just love the discomfort in that groan that is all we've got time for this week we'll be back on friday with another gi live online session we're rattling through those things we've only got a couple left to go you can find the previous gi live online sessions and the game developer playlist and the five games of and all the other spin-off podcasts we have done in the past on your podcasting platform of choice we put all episodes on the same feed and you can get more news insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz mm-hmm.